6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Passion Week. Well, this is hour 16 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, the final week of Christ's ministry on earth. A tough uh, session for just the opposite of the usual reasons. Many sessions we've had are very difficult to somehow summarize so many different things within the one hour. Book of Genesis there and whatever. This is difficult in a different sense. We're going to just talk about one week and our problem, our frustration will be that we can't possibly probe the depth of this one week. It has significance and meaning that we will spend an eternity trying to understand. But having said all that, let's take a look at what we can glean from this final week. I call this week the agony of love. Six hours that he spent uh, on our behalf to free us from eternity. Well, one of the first questions that people get concerned about, was it Friday or was it Wednesday? And let me say right up front, there are many good scholars that will support a Friday crucifixion. That is the traditional view of the church. I can remember vividly, uh, I was a co-host on a worldwide television broadcast as our guest, the guest that was scheduled at that time was Dr. John Warwick Montgomery, the famous apologist. And my associate host was get, got in a discussion with him about where he was explaining how you get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. And John Warwick Montgomery, this very august apologist, was explaining, defending the Friday thing. When he finished, I turned to the co-host and explained, I says, you need to understand that John is also an attorney and that's the way they bill. And uh, Dr. Montgomery almost fell off the couch laughing because he knew I was pulling his leg. I knew a lot about him because he was such a close friend with uh, Walter Martin and I, Walter and I were very close. But, but um, indeed, uh, eminent scholar and he would defend a Friday, but they they all try to argue various ways that a partial day counts as a day, and that's how they get the three days from Friday. I'm saying that because uh, there are people that still, it's not just a church tradition, there are people that will try to support that. But there are three reasons why I don't think that is correct from the Scripture. We mentioned last time that he went from Jericho to Bethany six days before Passover which means, in effect, that that Passover could not be on a Friday. Because you wouldn't be, six days before that would be a Shabbat, and that's from Jericho to Bethany is more than a Sabbath day's journey. And as an observant Jew, he would not violate that uh, Shabbat. There's another verse, and that is the morning, we call Easter morning, when the girls 
were going to the tomb with their spices and things, it says, after the Sabbaths were passed. Your English Bible may or may not notice this, but in the Greek it's very clear, it's plural. The Sabbaths were passed that Sunday morning, which means there was more than one Sabbath. On the Jewish calendar, there are 52 Shabbats, that is a, what we call Saturdays. There are also seven high Sabbaths in addition, one of which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after Passover. Passover itself is not considered a Sabbath, but the day after is, in the formal reckoning. So the fact that Sunday morning there was more than one Sabbath passed means that not only Saturday had passed, but either Thursday or Friday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the Sabbaths were passed, they were free to go to the, to the thing. So that, again, is a refutation of a Friday crucifixion. And the one that's also the third thing is Jesus himself said, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And the way that's expressed seems to reject it being simply idiomatical. Three days and three nights is, is clearly, you can't shoehorn that in between Friday evening and Sunday morning. It doesn't work so much as you might try. So we hold, that doesn't mean we're right, I just want you to know where we're coming from as we go through some of these other discussions. Six days before Passover, we came to Bethany in John chapter 12. And more than a Sabbath day's journey from Jericho, and three days and three nights in the heart of the earth in Matthew 12, verse 40. Okay, so those are three reasons. So Friday, we see him at Bethany from John 12. Saturday, we have the triumphal entry by this reckoning. And there's, understand, there's different scholars will have slightly different resting. We're lean, we've leaned heavily on the very interesting work by Rista Salata, that's been finally translated into English, and it's a very excellent reconciliation of much of this. Uh, Sunday is when the fig tree is cursed and so forth. Uh, Monday is when the conspirators counsel together. And I want to point out something to you. The plan by the conspirators expressly was not to take Jesus on a holiday because they feared the Romans. The Romans almost didn't care what you do as long as you did it orderly. They, the thing, their report card to Caesar gets punched by whether or not there's an insurrection. So the Romans were very tight in keeping things peaceful. They couldn't care less about the other controversies. The conspirators wanted to take Jesus on a non-holiday. That was the plan. I think it's very, very fascinating that Jesus controlled all the details at the upper room. It's Jesus that announces that someone's going to betray him. So you have to understand the spot that put Judas in. He wasn't going to do it that night. It's Passover the next day. You've got to be kidding. But Jesus announces that someone's going to be, who's going to betray him? The one that dips with me in the sod. He turns to Judas and says, what you do, do quickly. Who's calling the shots here? Jesus is. I think that's fascinating. Judas has to fish or cut bait. He's got to do it that night or it, the word's out. So he splits. He's got to find his co-conspirators. They've got to make arrangements. They've got to get an appointment with Pilate early in the morning. They, a whole bunch of things. That's why they're in Gethsemane so long. It took them that long to get their act together. 
Jesus is calling the shots, interestingly enough. And of course, we have the Last Supper, which is, and of course, the Passover lamb was between the evenings, and that's at the sundown, it goes to sundown the next day, and he'll be crucified before sundown the next day. It fascinates me that uh, it uh, is controlled by Jesus Christ. That, that put, that this, this chronology would uh, uh, support a Wednesday crucifixion, as we see, and we put John 19 and uh, uh, Mark 15 and Luke 23 together, that seems to be the, the profile, if you will. Then, of course, we have the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as specified in, in Leviticus 23. And then Friday is when the women prepare the spices and so forth. And uh, Saturday, they in rest. They, they, this is, and it's after the Sabbaths were passed. In Matthew 28, verse 1 is a very key verse. Check it in the Greek. You'll discover it's plural. And that's important uh, to get an insight here. And, of course, Sunday morning, they discover he's risen. Now, there's some scholars that would argue that he actually was resurrected that night, before, you know, before, obviously before sunrise. And uh, we get, that's splitting hairs in my view. The net of it is, is that uh, clearly Sunday morning, the women discover, it's interesting, the women discover that he has risen. And the apostles learn about it subsequently. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that's, that's a quick profile it's one of, of the candidate uh, reckonings of the final week, the so-called Passion Week of Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little bit about the triumphal entry then. This is by way of review from our excursions into this area when we were in Daniel chapter 9. We have, of course, the prophecy that Jesus deliberately arranged to fulfill in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. This is recorded in all four Gospels. They're to take everyone a lamb. It's interesting that the Passover is technically not a Levitical feast. It was at, in the home, not in the temple. Made blessed by the temple, of course. I don't want to make too much of that. But Jesus deliberately arranges to fulfill this. It's the only day in the Gospels that Jesus allowed himself to be proclaimed as a king. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Unto who? Unto Jerusalem. He's presenting himself to Jerusalem as a king. Formally, very real. And it's interesting, when you get to Luke 19, the crowd is singing Psalm 118, saying, Blessed is the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All of us, how many of you have heard the psalm, This is the day which the Lord hath made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it? See, we apply that to any day, but that's not what Psalm, that's from Psalm 118. What it's really alluding to is this day, the day that the Messiah presents himself as a king. That's, that's what's really in view in Psalm 118. But that's what they're singing. You and I miss the point. Whenever we run the risk of not understanding that the Pharisees come to rescue, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Why? What's wrong with singing that song? You and I, would, as Gentiles especially, would miss that. But the Pharisees understood that the crowd singing that psalm are proclaiming him the Messiah. And they assume he doesn't want his disciples blaspheming. Well, he never said he was God. Gee, the Pharisees thought so. <laughs> I 
See, because the, the significance of this is he's declaring himself the Messiah, and they understood that is blasphemy. And he's, they're assuming that he doesn't want, in the enthusiasm of the moment, his disciples to blaspheme. Master, rebuke your disciples. It's fascinating to see his very diplomatic reply. He says, he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So, I love that. And I usually admonish our, our people on our tours as they walk down from over that very road, which we do from Mount of Olives down, to pick up a few rocks, put them in your pocket, take them back home, and mount them on a plaque. And people ask, what's that in your living room or den? You know, that's one of the stones that didn't cry out. And you can give them the whole story of Daniel 9 and, and uh, Luke 19 and so forth. And of course, we just by way of review, you may recall in, in that Gabriel gave Daniel a four verse prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Gabriel said, from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the King, would be, in effect, 173,880 days. This is all by way of review. We know the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem was the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which is dated at March 14th of 445 B.C. And of course, the big enigma is, when did Jesus allow himself to be proclaimed as king? And that's what we're watching here in Luke 19. As I indicated that, that before the previous session, Christ's ministry began in the fall of 28 A.D. Why? Because Tiberius was appointed in 14 A.D., and it was in the 15th year of Tiberius. In other words, 14 years later. So it's 14 plus 14 is 28. So it's in A.D. 28 that the ministry began. It's on the fourth Passover that this is all occurring. So that is datable. What's interesting about that date, if you do the arithmetic, you discover several things that all of this is written, by the way, in the Septuagint translation, which was codified in 270 B.C., three centuries before the Gospel period, 300 years before all this. And if you go through the arithmetic, you'll discover that between those dates occur, by the time you go through the leap year and all the rest of this stuff, is 173,880 days. And all of this is documented in Sir Robert Anderson's classic work in 1894 called The Coming Prince. I encourage you to take a look at that. But it's interesting, as Jesus riding this donkey to Jerusalem, when he comes near, comes up over the brow of the hill of Mount of Olives, and he sees the city, what does he do? He wept over it. He knew what was coming. He said, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. This thy day. This thy He held them accountable to understand Daniel 9. He expected them to understand that this is the day they were supposed to be expecting him. And of course, he also knew that four days from now, he would be, the same crowd would be yelling, crucify him. But he goes on in Luke 19, he says, For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, Compass thee round and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. He's talking to Jerusalem. And we all know from history, 38 years later, the Roman legions, 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions, laid siege to Jerusalem for about nine months, slaughtered over a million people. Another half million died from the pestilence and what followed. And they literally they had planned to take the temple as a trophy, but a torch went through one window, started to fire, the wood burned, the gold melted. Titus had to instruct his troops to take it apart stone by stone to recover the gold, and that was literally true. They did not leave in thee one stone left upon another. 
Question. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, one of the biggest milestones, most terrifying milestones in Jewish history. Over a million and a half people, men, women, and children killed. Why? Why was Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD? There are a lot of good answers to that. Let's look at the answer Jesus gave. Why was this going to happen? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That just gives me chills. Jesus held them accountable to know the prophecies of Daniel 9. And it's the same prophecy that Jesus tells his four disciples in Matthew 24 to understand. Matthew 24, 15. And when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's an allusion to that same passage. Well, after those incidents, gee, what's coming next? Well, after those three score and two weeks, shall the Messiah be karat, executed. But not for himself. For whom? You and me. And the people of the princes shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And we know who destroyed the city and the sanctuary is the Roman army. So in some sense, they're the people of what? The princes shall come. That's a title of a leader yet to show up. And at the end thereof there shall be a flood or a diaspora, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Karat, to cut off, to eliminate, to kill, to execute. The Old Testament has a prophecy in Daniel 9, verse 26, that the Messiah will be killed, be executed. That shocks many Jewish scholars. It's in the Old Testament, it's in their words. Indeed he was. If you want a candidate for the Messiah of Israel, find someone that was killed just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. We've got a good candidate in mind. <laughs> the princes shall come. That's, a, that's one of 33 titles in the Old Testament of this world leader yet to show up. He has 13 titles in the New Testament. So obviously the 69 weeks were fulfilled to the very day. You and I are dwelling in that interval of verse 26. After the 69, but the 70th week has not started yet, but we know from a lot of indicators that it's not far away. This last seven-year period is about to start on the relatively near horizon. In that interval, we have the crucifixion, and we have the destruction of the temple. That takes us 38 years there, but we know it's actually lasted for 2,000 or so. This interval, by the way, is also implied in a lot of different scriptures. They're in your notes for the Daniel 9 review. It's defined for you. that They're blinded from the day that Jesus made that declaration, verse 42 of, Daniel, of, of Luke 19, until the... Romans 11, so Paul tells us, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's in the interval. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the rapture of church, that's going to close that interval. And we'll be getting into the 70th week of Daniel. This interval is the period of the church, an era that was kept secret in the Old Testament, according to Jesus' own remark in Matthew 13, and is revealed to us by Paul in Ephesians 3. Critical study in eschatology. The church was born at Pentecost, and the prerequisites to the church was the atonement and the resurrection and the ascension. The spiritual gifts are only given after the ascension. Christ is taken out so the Comforter can come in in his, in his unique way uh, during this period. Okay, the final week. Let's take now, uh, take a look at the Last Supper in detail. Interesting time. It was not to be on a feast day, according to Matthew 26, 5. That was the instruction. 
But Jesus, after announcing it's going to happen in the uh, meeting, he turns to what thou doest, do quickly, and Judas has to split and somehow figure out what he's going to do here. When you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're praying there, and these soldiers show up, Jesus advances to them. I love this. He, if you look closely at the narrative, he's the one running the show. He advances to them. He says, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And they fall. They're, they're, they're smashed against the wall. They're, they're, they're shook by that declaration. Because I believe he's making a very key theological statement. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm the guy you're looking for. He says, I am. He's using his key title there. He says that seven times in the Gospel of John. Then he starts giving orders. If I'm the one you're seeking, let these go their way. Who's calling the shots here? Not the soldiers. Jesus is. Understand, all the way through, he's in charge. He's controlling the timing. Why? Because there are hundreds of specifications that have been and will be fulfilled in the next few hours. Every detail has been laid down in advance centuries before. The crucifixion is not a tragedy, it's an achievement. It's what he came to do. But notice who's in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge. There are six trials that will occur between his arrest and the crucifixion. There are three Jewish trials before Annas, before Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. And those are obviously recorded in the Scripture. And then, then there are Roman trials. He's put before Pilate. Pilate hears the word Galilee. Aha! Herod's in town. It's his problem. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod says, no way. Back to Pilate. So <laughs> these administrators are trying to wash their hands of this problem. Six trials. Every one of them, every detail of every trial is illegal. It's illegal. Interesting. The illegalities. The binding of a prisoner before he was condemned was illegal. He's bound. That's illegal. The judges participated in the arrest of the accused. That was illegal. No legal transactions, including a trial, could be conducted at night. This is a kangaroo court, as we would call it, going on in the middle of the night. While an acquittal could be pronounced the same day, any other verdict required a majority of two and had to come on a subsequent day. That was in the law. That was the law. They didn't obey any of this. No prisoner could be convicted on his own evidence. And of course, that's the only evidence he had. That's what finally does it. When the high priest finally said, I adjure thee, they couldn't get the, they couldn't get the witnesses to agree. I adjure thee by the living God, tell us who you are. Well, he's under oath now. That's the only time he makes a statement. This is what he's under oath. Jesus says, you know, you said it, buddy. Next time you see me, I'm coming and, and you, you know the sin. So it's interesting. No prisoner can be convicted on his own evidence. That evidence convicted him. And incidentally, the evidence that convicted him was his claim that he was the creator. That's staggering. It was the duty of the judge, by the way, to see that the interest of the accused was fully protected. You've got to be kidding! This is, a, this is a railroad job, as we might call it. The use of violence during the trial was apparently unopposed by the judges. They slapped him around. 
The judges sought false witnesses against Jesus. The judges sought these false witnesses, tried to get them to agree. They couldn't agree. In a Jewish court, the accused was to be assumed innocent until proved guilty by two or more witnesses. These ideas, by the way, you notice, have their roots biblically. They're cherished rights that we try, clumsily perhaps, we try to imbue in our uh, 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 jurisprudence, our legal system. But in any case, they're certainly violated here. No witness was ever called for the defense. <laughs> except his own self-incriminating in their mind. By the way, the court lacked the civil authority to condemn a man to death. That's why they had to make these arrangements to see Pilate. And seeing Pilate took special arrangements. They couldn't just go see Pilate. I mean, he's the personal representative of the ruler of the world. He happens to be in town. They have to go to him to get done what they want to get done. It was illegal to conduct a session of the court on a feast day. And it's certainly a feast day. It's, you know, it's Passover, for crying out loud. The sentence is finally passed in the palace of the high priest, but the law demanded that it be pronounced in the temple in the hall of hewn stone. They didn't do that. It was in, his, it was, uh, in, the, in the high priest's own palace. And also the high priest tears his garment. That was against the law. He was never permitted to tear his official robe. That's in Leviticus 21, verse 10. And by the way, without his priestly robe, he couldn't have put Christ under oath. Can't have it both ways. If he put him under oath, he must have had his priestly robe, or he couldn't do that. If he has priestly robe, he wasn't supposed to tear it. There is a habit of tearing a robe under certain things, but he's, he wasn't allowed to. That was against the law. Let's talk about Pilate. Pilate tried hard to get out of this. I'm, I feel very sympathetic to Pilate's dilemma, understanding the pressures on an administrator. Jesus Christ was pronounced innocent by the personal representative of the ruler of the world. I find no fault in this man, he declares to the crowd. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 